Welcome to episode 46 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI supervisory special agent Darren Mott. And in this podcast, I'm going to go through a couple news items, talk about the Juniper Network data breach of 2015, talk about zero trust, and talk about how to protect seniors from the current publisher's clearinghouse scam that is making the rounds. So as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast and listen to me pontificate on these various cyber topics. Uh, I was going to have a guest this week to talk about application whitelisting. Uh, however, they uh, moved that back a week or two. Uh, it's going to be a couple engineers from PCmatic to talk about what application whitelisting is, why it's important to use, and the value that companies can have by instituting such a platform into their system. And so essentially, in a nutshell, what application whitelisting is is the opposite of what we currently do today, it seems. So if you if you work for a company, uh, you have a lot of different um, applications that you can use, a lot of different things you can do on the network. And companies generally use what are called blacklists. So they find software applications and things on the network that they don't want people to have access to. And so they blacklist the capability of those entities to use them. What application whitelisting does is it requires companies to forcibly choose what applications they're allowing to use on their network. And we'll talk more about this again when I have the guests on, but essentially I think this is a great idea in the sense that um, let's take let's take email, personal email on a network. I am a proponent that companies should not allow private email on their networks. Most companies do, and I understand it from a personnel perspective, and you want you want your employees to you know have the capability to check their personal email. But let's be honest, we all have cell phones. We all have personal devices that we can hotspot into our cell phones. We can check our email in a lot of different ways than on the network, uh, the work network. But for the sake of ease, sometimes it's easier just to do that, and most companies allow folks to, to do that. So it's hard to do. Um, and that's just one example of of one of the items that sh- you know you should be should blacklist, but you don't want a whitelist. So let's say you have Word that's important to your company, then you whitelist Word. So let everybody use Word. So we'll talk more about this uh, when that podcast comes in a week or two. So um, that'll be a much deeper conversation, and hopefully they'll do a better job explaining it than I I am, and how easy it is really to deploy within your network, and the advantages it has over a lot of the stuff that's going on now. Um, one of the, I mean, the other big thing that you're going to hear a lot of if you are following cybersecurity news is the the concept of zero trust. Several episodes back, I had Dr. Chase Cunningham on, and we talked about zero trust a little bit. He is a big proponent of it, and it's probably the way you're going to see a lot of companies move to simply because of how it is used to greatly reduce the capability of bad guys to do anything on a network. Because essentially, it means that everything on the network lacks trust. So that the way bad guys are getting into corporate networks is they gain legitimate access to somebody's account, log into that that user account on the network, and without zero trust, basically the network likely trusts authorized users. And so it makes it very easy for bad guys to pivot from one computer to another, infect a system, and find the information they want, download ransomware or what have you. So that is the advantage to zero trust is that the user has to authenticate access to other parts of the network at every interval. I'm probably not doing a great job of explaining it per se. Um, there are better experts in the field for that. But there was a presidential directive that came out ordering all federal agencies to go to a zero trust model. 
not a bad idea. The problem is going to be with deployment of that. It's not something you can very simply turn on and off. There are parts of the network you're going to have to enhance, have to build to. It's going to be very expensive. But if you are a stock market guy and you like to invest in things, invest in those companies that are working in the zero trust environment. Chances are you're going to see a lot of their stock go up if they're publicly traded. So uh, I encourage you to look into Zero Trust more if you are a corporate owner, if you are a corporate IT guy. It's something that is coming, something you should look to you know, try to implement within your corporation. It'll do a lot to really keep your your network safe. And and so, you know, I I, um, I give that to you to kind of look into as a, another mitigation option for you. So a couple of news items to talk about for today. Uh, a friend of mine who is a author or a writer for Bloomberg. Well, I say friend. I've, we've never met, but I've, we've talked on the phone several times. But he is a writer for Bloomberg. His name is Jordan Robertson. So he published an article today, which is interesting uh, you probably won't see a whole lot of coverage on this, but I, I, you know, recommend you find this article on what's called the Juniper Breach Mystery. Uh, it's again at Bloomberg.com. The title: Juniper Breach Mystery starts to clear with new details on hackers and the U.S. role, which is an interesting article in the sense that it highlights the way that our own systems can possibly be used against us. But let me read a little bit from the article and then talk about it a bit. But this is uh, this whole article is focused around what I like to refer to as cyber counterintelligence, the capability of nation states to use technical means to spy on other company, other countries, really. Uh, and so in this case, uh, it was interesting to see what came out of this reporting. But this is from years of investigative reporting by Jordan and some other folks from Bloomberg. But so reading from the article, Days before Christmas in 2015, Juniper Networks Incorporated alerted users it had been breached. In a brief statement, the company said it had discovered unauthorized code in one of its network security products, allowing hackers to decipher encrypted communications and gain high-level access to customers' computer systems. Further details were scant, but Juniper made clear the implications were serious. It urged users to download a software update with the highest priority. More than five years later, the breach of Juniper's network remains an enduring mystery in computer security, an attack on America's software supply chain, which that potentially exposed highly sensitive customers, including telecommunications companies and U.S. military agencies, to years of spying before the company issued a patch. So basically, I, what, what we're saying here, or what Jordan is saying here, is that it took a, Juniper, this breach occurred many, uh, I don't know how many years before Juniper realized the breach had occurred and put a patch out. So if you had Juniper as one of your firewall solutions or one of your network solutions, chances are people could access information on your network. So reading again more from the from the article, those intruders haven't yet been publicly identified. And if there were any victims other than Juniper, they haven't surfaced to date, which is an interesting point. If the only victim of this was Juniper. But one crucial detail about the incident has long been known, uncovered by independent researcher days after Juniper's alert in 2015, and continues to raise questions about the methods U.S. intelligence agencies use to monitor foreign adversaries. The Juniper product that was targeted, a popular firewall device called NetScreen, included an algorithm written by the National Security Agency. Security researchers have suggested that the algorithm contained an intentional flaw, otherwise known as a backdoor, that American spies could have used to eavesdrop on the communication of Juniper's overseas customers. The NSA declined to address allegations about the algorithm, which is not a big surprise. So let's keep in mind that I've worked with folks from the NSA. They have a very important mission that helps secure the U.S. national security by 
honestly, hacking into foreign adversaries' networks to see what they're doing to figure out, to gain intelligence to figure out what they're doing. They target the bad guys, who we determine to be the bad guys. And so, you know, it's interesting to see um, because this particular data breach into Juniper that they announced, attribution wasn't provided to who it is. No one knows who it is still. It would not be a surprise if, you know, our adversaries, likely China would be my guess, uh, if they looked into this, they found this flaw themselves in, in, in evaluating the Juniper code simply because the, I'm sure there's people in, in um, China that used it, but, you know, they could then reverse it, compromise it, and then use the information there to get access, the same access the NSA was trying to do overseas. So some more from this article, uh, Juniper installed the NSA code an algorithm that the unwieldy named dual elliptic curve deterministic random bit generator in NetScreen devices beginning in 2008, even though the company engineers knew there was a vulnerability that some experts considered a backdoor, according to former senior U.S. intelligence officials and three Juniper employees who were involved with or briefed about the decision. So members of the hacking group linked to the Chinese government called APT5 hijacked the NSA algorithm in 2012. Exactly what I'm saying. According to two people involved with Juniper's investigation and an internal document detailing its findings that Bloomberg reviewed, the hackers altered the algorithm so they could decipher encrypted data flowing through the VPN connections, da, 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 so, on, so on and so forth. It's a long article. You, I, you can look at it, but essentially China used our own, our own backdoor against ourselves, which this case, this particular case, this particular situation highlights what very few news organizations talk about. I think largely because there are so few reporters that understand these cybersecurity means. Jordan is one of these that has done a lot of spent a lot of time looking into these matters and trying to understand them and then explain them to the world. I'm slightly disappointed in the fact that it's not more widely known, this Juniper case, or there's not more discussion about it by other other news groups that would find interest in the NSA part that they use NSA algorithm against us now. But that is the problem with cyber counterintelligence is people don't understand it and people don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Yet, if you are a business owner with a network, your biggest concern, depending on the business sector you're in, needs to be Chinese hackers, especially if you are in the defense industrial base, clear defense contracting world. If you do anything national security wise, Boeing, Raytheon, all the companies like that, and the smaller ones that support them, not just those large companies, need to be concerned with this type of vulnerability and the capability of the Chinese government and their actors to compromise their networks and steal their information. Most companies, um, when they find out that there's a data breach, especially you know within the national security realm, will report it, uh, and it doesn't really go much beyond that because there's no one to arrest, which is the big problem with cybersecurity matters. It's, it's very hard to find attribution, to find the bad guy behind the keyboard, go find him, arrest him, and do something with him. When I was with the FBI in 2011, I went back to headquarters and I started a unit within the counterintelligence division targeted purposely at these hackers overseas. We were trying to find who was doing the action behind the keyboard and what could we do to mitigate their capabilities. Because in the national security world, it's very rare, very seldom does anyone get arrested. If you go back to 2009, 2010, that, that time frame, there was what was called the ghost stories case, which were 10 Russian sleepers that had been in the country for years, and they basically were all rounded up and arrested all at the same time. It became a very big news case 
um, Anna, and I cannot remember her last name. She was a redheaded Russian woman. She was very attractive. And so she was the one that the newspapers glommed onto simply because it made it for good reading. Um, and so they would look, they would talk about her in respect to this case, but they were all spies. They were here on the behest of the Russian government to steal U.S. secrets. It is a national security story. So, you know, Anna Chapman, that was her name. I'm sorry, Anna Chapman. So if you remember that, that's, that was individuals doing bad stuff that we were able to get because they were here on American soil. From a cyber security perspective, it's very hard to do anything with these guys because they never leave the country. We dealt with a lot of different Chinese folks. I can't get into the details of most of it, but we, we recognized that there were actors in China that were using their capabilities to hack U.S. companies and steal information beyond just governmental information. I'm talking, I mean, sure, they hacked, you know, U.S. government networks and stuff like that, but they also hacked commercial networks. And that is where the U.S. and China differs in this world of cyber espionage, cyber counterintelligence, if you will. The Russians, I'm sorry, the Chinese, then the Russians do this as well. They do a little differently, but the Chinese are targeting private companies and stealing their intellectual property. The U.S. does not do that against Chinese companies, largely because they don't have anything we would want to steal to replicate because we make all the, the best stuff. Now, the U.S., does the U.S. spy on China? Sure. I mean, if you don't think they do, you are surely naive. Um, and I'm not telling anybody anything that's that's out of the ordinary or, or a surprise that, you know, we obviously, you know, there are intelligence agencies for a purpose. The CIA and NSA is, are designed to gather intelligence from adversaries in other countries to allow our politicians and leaders to make decisions on how to deal with these countries and then do things that they do. But again, the big difference, the Chinese compromise our corporate networks. And so this, you know, NSA in 2008, when they first did this, were probably thinking this was a great idea. They were cutting edge at the time. Um, the, the, in 2008, the, the depth and breadth of the Chinese hacking capabilities was kind of nascent in the USIC as far as understanding really what they did or what they could do. Um, and so, I mean, the first reported Chinese espionage group was a, uh, called Titan Rain in 2003. There was a big mm, Time Magazine, I believe, article about Titan Rain. You can probably find it in the archives, but they were the first big hacking group that, that someone looked at. So, you know, for five years, um, the China had been building up their capability. So not a surprise, they would find a vulnerability in this Juniper code and then use it against us. Because remember, all, soft, all software has code that makes it run and the one thing that software is not created with is with security in mind. Almost every piece of software created has vulnerabilities that bad guys can exploit to get into networks or to use to hack to do bad things. Um, and so that is why all of your devices always send you download information to update because they found a flaw they're trying to fix so bad guys cannot get to your to into your network, which brings me to my second article that has to do with Bluetooth. And so this is from ThreatPost, um, and it is by Tara Seals. It came out this afternoon. But researchers have disclosed a group of 16 different vulnerabilities collectively dubbed Bracktooth, which impacts billions of devices that rely on Bluetooth Classic for communication. So this is not good. This is a very bad piece of piece of vulnerability that has been identified by the University of Singapore. And according to a paper written there, the bugs are found in the closed commercial 
Bluetooth stack used by at least 1,400 embedded chip components that can lead to a host of attacks, mainly denial of service via firmware crashes. The term BRAC is actually Norwegian for crash, and one of the bugs can also lead to arbitrary code execution. So they team analyzed 13 pieces of Bluetooth hardware from 11 vendors, and there were 20 critical vulnerability exploit um, examples assigned across them with four vulnerabilities pending CVE assignments from Intel and Qualcomm, essentially meaning that you're going to see reports coming out from these companies with these CVEs um, that you should, is something that you need to fix. And CVE, I'm sorry, stands for Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures. I get that wrong every single time. I always have to look it up. I, you'd think I'd have it memorized by now, but my apologies. So Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures, basically meaning there's something bad going on, you probably need to fix it. Uh, the NSA, the FBI come out with these periodically. There was one a little while ago about Microsoft Exchange. So, but when these come out, then it, you really need to, the, the, the people who create the, the devices where the, ex, the vulnerability exists need to send out a patch to fix it. So chances are you are likely to see tons and tons of different Bluetooth updates coming out, especially if the, uh, your, your, your device that has Bluetooth is from in is from the following vendors: Intel, Texas Instruments, Cypress, Bluetrum Technology, Zahua Gil Technology, Actions Technology, Qualcomm, Espressive Systems, Harman International, and Scilabs. So those are the ones that would be known the known bugs so far. And most of these are found on Internet of Things devices. And so um, the most critical one affects series of low cost, low power microcontrollers integrated Wi-Fi and Bluetooth from the vendor Espersif, and they're commonly found in, in Internet of Things appliances used in industry automation, smart home device, personal fitness gadgets, and more. So if you have these devices that have Bluetooth, chances are there's a vulnerability there that a bad guy could theoretically exploit. Now, if you're walking around with all these devices and you're just an individual, is it something that's probably a big threat to you? Not really. But if you bring your Bluetooth device with the vulnerability into your corporate network, there's always the possibility of over, overflow and, and you know, Bluetooth uh, leakage and stuff like that. Again, the bad guy has to be kind of near you to be able to do that. So chances are you know, the, how bad a threat this is is somewhat limited. But it shows that bad guys are always looking for things to exploit. Bluetooth, again, Bluetooth, in order to be usable, you kind of have to be near the device. Uh, unless you are able to get someone to download something that impacts it remotely. Some of them. I mean, you, you really need to go, uh, if you're a bad guy, go in a lot of different areas to make that work. Um, but the, the worst thing they could do is send you code that would cause your device to freeze up. Um, which certainly, you know, if you are, you know, a criminal and then one of these things impacts, say, door, you know, home doorbells and you could, you could get close to it access it through its its active Bluetooth, turn it off, then you could do bad things. You know, do I expect a huge rush of home invasions because of this? I do not. But it goes to show, and I, I only bring this up from the point that everything is compromisable. So you may think, I have nothing in my house that anybody wants. I don't have anything anyone would compromise. I disagree. Chances are likely you don't know how many devices are even on your home network. And I recommend you go to your router, take a look and take a quick peek and see how many there are. I think I have 24. It's my wife and I are in the house by ourselves, but there's still 24 things connected to our network. You know, from my, the Mac, I'm, MacBook I'm using, I mean, I'm sorry, the iMac I'm using right now to my smart TVs, to my phones, my iPads, all that kind of stuff. So all that to be said, think about what you're connecting where. 
Be careful with Bluetooth. If you have an Internet of Things device with Bluetooth enabled, but you're not using the Bluetooth, turn it off uh, until you get a patch for this. So, again, it's out there. It was an interesting article. I, I thought I'd, I'd kind of bring that up. And so now my last article, I want to talk about, think about your elderly relatives. And I, and I say elderly. I don't mean elderly like, you know, they're in a walker and can't, you know, do much. I'm talking about folks that don't spend a lot of time thinking about cybersecurity, you know, are novices online and easily susceptible to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Easily susceptible to um, influence, easily influenceable. So this is an article. It's from a little while ago, but I still wanted to bring it up simply because I'm going to eventually build a program on how to protect seniors. Um, and so this is something I wanted to use in that. But it's from thebalanceeveryday.com, the website. It's by Sandra Grouschoff. And I apologize. I certainly mangled her last name. But basically, the title is How to Recognize Publishers Clearinghouse Scams. So there are a lot of scams out there. But Publishers Clearinghouse would be one of the bigger ones because everybody knows what Publishers Clearinghouse is. It's been around for a long time. They give out millions of dollars. And they still do so. They still come to your house, give you a big check, say, congratulations, you won. So... This is from the article. If you receive an email, phone call, or letter from Publishers Clearinghouse saying that you're a big winner, it's important to be able to tell the difference between a legitimate prize and a sweepstakes scam. Prize wins often feel too good to be true, and sometimes they are. Big-name sweepstakes sponsors like Publishers Clearinghouse are a prime target for scammers, so it's important to think before you react to any win winning to any win notification from them. Here are common questions from P uh, Publishers Clearinghouse winners. I just received a notice in the mail. They're saying I've won a sweepstakes. This is real. Quote, I have received a prize notification letter along with a check from Publishers Clearinghouse to cover expenses should I cash a check. And three, Publishers Clearinghouse keeps calling, telling me I've won $100 million. They say I have to pay 1% before they release the prize. What should I do? All these things are scams. Um, and so, you know, how do you recognize these scams? Well, scammers are adept at making people believe they are affiliated with Publishers Clearinghouse when really they're not. Publishers Clearinghouse is a popular target of scams because people are familiar with the company and want to believe they've really won that million dollars or that $5,000 a week for life or what have you. And it's very easy for the bad guys to make legitimate looking win notifications that would make you believe you're a big winner. So you need to be familiar or you need to instruct your, you know, more naive family members, how to be familiar with how Publishers Clearinghouse notifies its big winners. Here's the big, here's the six tips you can help you spot these scams. One, Publishers Clearinghouse doesn't email or call its winners. So if you get a call or an email saying you won Publishers Clearinghouse, no, you did not. So move on, delete the email, ask the guy on the phone, can you get to the scam so I can find out what you're dealing with, or just hang up. You never have to pay to receive a legitimate Publishers Clearinghouse win. And, and honestly, most of these six six tips can pretty much go to any type of financial scam like this, but let's just use Publishers Clearinghouse for the example. So if someone says you won something and you have to pay money, then it's, it's a scam. Don't give out confidential information when you enter. In other words, you know, you don't have to give Publishers Clearinghouse your address, bank account, number, driver's license, or any of that stuff. So if they call and say you won and they ask for that information, do not give it to them. A check doesn't mean you won. So just because you get a check that's not legitimate, do not cash it. Do your research before you respond, which really, that, that one should be number one. Anytime at this point where we are in the world, anytime you get anything regarding anything financial that seems too good to be true, research it before you do anything else. And I'm, I'm even talking about if someone calls and says, 
you know, and this happened to my mother. She got a call and so she answered the phone and the person said, grandma. So she thought it was my son. And he said, you know, I've been arrested. Or I've been in a car accident, whatever the scam was. I need a thousand dollars. So fortunately she called me and said, Hey, Patrick just called me. He needs a thousand dollars. And I said, well, he's sitting right here next to me. I'm pretty sure he did not do that. So that is a common, common, common scam targeting grandparents. So, you know, obviously, you know, if you get those calls, you know, hang up and call who you think it is and make sure that they're really having that problem. And lastly, verify your wins with Publishers Clearinghouse directly. Again, this would be this would be number one or number one A. You know, contact Publishers Clearinghouse and say, hey, I just got this. Is it real? Chances are it is not. So Facebook is a huge sender of these scams. So just be aware of them on there as well. So uh, this brings me to my last topic, and that is educating everybody. I want to make sure that the people that listen to this podcast, the people that listen to me that follow me on LinkedIn never have to contact law enforcement or the FBI because they've been victimized by some kind of cyber threat, be it publishers clearinghouse scams, be it someone hacking into your network, someone compromising your email, someone compromising your Facebook account. I want everybody to stay safe. So I've created a couple of things. I've created um, a new podcast called Get Cyber Smart. And so the idea behind this podcast, if you are technically oriented and you understand a lot about cybersecurity, I'll be honest with you, this is probably not the podcast for you, but it's the podcast for all of your family members that call you every time they have a cyber problem. So what I'm doing with this podcast is basically starting at the beginning of what is cyber and moving right through to multiple lessons, multiple topics to educate people as to what cyber is. It's really a podcast that's Turns out and will end up being Cyber 101, Cyber 201, Cyber 301, Cyber 401, uh, and they're short. They're going to be short episodes, a couple minutes long, hopefully no more than 10 to 15. And if I'm at 15 minutes, I need to cut that back. So it's going to be you know 15, anything over 15, and I've done something wrong. But the goal is to give everyone a basic a basis of knowledge when it comes to protecting themselves online from all of the threats, the cyber crime out there. And things like that. So I, I say all this just to say that that podcast has been released. Uh, I hope to do uh, an episode a week. I'm building out the curriculum for that. So so you know if you have relatives or friends you know that always come to you for cyber things, ask them to listen to this podcast. It's not going to hurt for them to get a little training on cyber matters. So that's called the Get Cyber Smart. Cyber spelled the same way. Cyber guy is C Y B U R. Or you can just search my name, Darren Mott. You'll find that podcast as well. And uh, provide me feedback, what you think about it. If there's topics you'd like me to discuss on that or they'd like me to discuss on that, they can bring that up. Um, and I can do a little piece at the end of those podcasts beyond whatever my topic is for for that week and, and talk about it briefly, kind of like I do here with the news articles when I don't have guests. But like, for example, the first episode is what is cyber? I'm going to explain what cyber means, what it is. I, mean, I think if you talk to 100 different people, you get 100 different answers. And so um, going forward, listening to the podcast, this first episode will give you the basis for what I'm talking about when I mean cyber. So uh, I, you know, I thank you very much for providing that information to anybody who you think wants to listen. I know it's going to take a while to build that up, but that's okay. I got time. Uh, and I, I, my goal with that podcast is if you get a little cyber smarter, you'll get a lot cyber safer. In addition to that, um, I've created a uh, beta program that is an online learning system that I'm, I'm, I'm parsing out in pieces. In other words, I don't have it all at one. I mean, if, if you bought things online, um, then you get uh, the whole program at once that you can digest 
immediately if you want to. I'm doing mine a little differently, and I'm not charging anybody for it. It's currently, since it's a beta, it's free because I'm still working on some audio sync issues with my video and stuff like that. So it's not perfect. But the idea, again, it's an expansion of the podcast. It goes into more detail on cyber matters. And I've got a, a, a you know dozen or so folks that are beta testing it for me. Uh, if it's something you're interested in, uh, I'll even tell you here, go to cybersmart.com, www.cybersmart.com. You'll see the page there. Um, if you have suggestions on how to make the web page more interesting, feel free to let me know. I'm not much of a web page designer. The company I'm using to distribute the videos and stuff kind of created the homepage, but I can modify that. But I, I have no, I have absolutely no artistic capability whatsoever. So if anyone wants to help me with that, that'd be great. Um, but feel free to go there and you can sign up for it. It doesn't cost you anything. All I ask is you just give me some feedback on what you, what you think. That's going to do it for this episode of the Cyber Guy Podcast. As always, I appreciate you taking the time to listen. Feel free to send me an email, darren at thecyberguy.com, darren at cybersmart.com. I have both of those emails if you so desire to send to one or the other. You can follow me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash Darren Mott. As always, if you have thoughts on the podcast, topics you'd like to discuss in the future, let me know and I'll try to find guests to have those conversations with. As you go through your week, know knowledge is protection. The more you know, the better off you'll be. And understand the threats that are targeting you. Assess your risk. Proceed wisely. Thanks for listening. Have a good weekend.